Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. Coming right up, we have another interview episode with Board Game with Education, and on this episode, we have Dr. Witz. Who the heck is Dr. Witz? Well, they are a two-person game design, Austin and Aaron. So we have two guests on the show that design board games based around economic principles. So it's really cool opportunity that I have to pick their brains and see how they integrate economic principles in their games. So as a game player, we kind of learn a bit about economic theory without actually knowing it. So we'll get into that episode in just a minute. Before that, let's hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the game Facing Off. You can go to kickstarter.com right now and search Facing Off to back the game. It is a really, really fun party game. It's a totally new twist on the old sketch and charade style of party games because it's not a guessing game or like any other card game on the market. It's family rated and it's an all play, role changing party game where you compete to describe sketch and bet your way to victory in two minute time pressured rounds. So it is a blast to play. Grace and I had the opportunity to play it at our board game event. There were both new players and veteran gamers that were able to get together and really enjoy the game. So be sure to check that out again, facing off on Kickstarter now. All right, now let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Board Game with Education. I am super excited because this will be the first, I believe the first interview episode with two guests. And we have Austin Smokowitz and Aaron Hanzowitz from the game design team, Dr. Wits. So I'm super excited to have them on. Guys, would you mind introducing yourselves a little bit? Oh, wait, sorry. Before before we do that, I did learn a fun fact about you guys as a game design team before the show. It was actually a bit frustrating <laughs> trying to find a fun fact about you because at first I couldn't find your full names anywhere online. It took me, it took me a little bit to research that. And then from there, I didn't want to highlight individual facts more so I wanted to find something you did together as a team and it looks like you won the unpub slogan contest yes we did yeah that's right which is pretty cool um so the slogan is building better board games together and you guys came up with that slogan so how did you how did you come up with that to be honest it was lots of sitting back and thinking thinking to myself and consulting with Austin and going, iteration is fun, but also, I mean, okay, the purpose of Unpub, I don't know if anyone's here has done an Unpub, but the great thing about Unpubs is that when you're attending them, you're really there to help each other. And you're there to give good feedback to other people. You're there to get good feedback from other people. You're there to work together. It's not a competition. It's a place where we really are working together to make our games better. And, and that that's just the spirit of Unpub. And it, it was important to Dr. Witz that that was clearly communicated. Unpub exists to help. Whether you're there as a playtester to help designers, whether you're a designer uh, helping other designers 
the spirit of Unpub is to help because it's tough to get constant good feedback. You don't necessarily have the the circles to do it. You may not know the right people, and and these events create a focal point that really brings people together to test out ideas, to figure out if they work or if they don't. And that was just our best stab at trying to really put that in a clear message so that others, especially others who are not involved with Unpub yet, have a good idea of what what they're going to get when they come to an Unpub event. Right. I know a lot of teachers can benefit from the, I guess, the idea that Unpub has. I've never been to an event, so maybe you can help me understand it better, but essentially it's it's a lot of game designers getting together and putting their game out there and receiving feedback on their game to make it better. Is that right? And, and it's feedback from other game designers, but it's also feedback from other playtesters. Typically when you put on an Unpub event, you also do a lot of publicity to ask people in the community to come join you to playtest. And, and the great thing about the Unpub is they are set up so that people can create their own local Unpub event. That's known as an Unpub Mini. They're set up where they have a big national event, Unpub Prime, and they have a lot of uh, Unpub protozones at various conventions, especially out east at Origins, PAX Unplugged, BGGCon, where they just serve as that coordination device that people know, find the Blue Nudo, you will find people playtesting. And if you want to do your own event, they provide a wonderful set of resources. They will give you sort of here are some ways to organize it yourself. Here are some good places to reach out. They'll help publicize it. They will maintain, once your event's in their system, they'll give you a place to have board game designers sign up because that's usually the scarcity of spots for the, the designers to set up their games. So they provide resources and they make it very possible that if you just want to do a local event at your library, board game store, church, little convention hall, union hall, they will help make that possible in terms of here's a system to register people, here's good policies. If you go and reach out, you can start something. And that's the other great thing. It's, it's not just they have pre-made events, but they give you the resources for you to really build that community yourself in your area if that hasn't been started yet. Right. And there's also an added benefit to the designers who participate in that people are able to give feedback to the website as well. And, and the Unpub website becomes a repository of uh, feedback from these conventions that you can you know, look up later after the event. Yeah, that's I mean, that's super awesome. And like I mentioned, I love drawing parallels between education and uh, lesson planning and game design. And I wish I really wish there was something like that that was more I mean, I guess logistically, it's kind of tough to find students to play test maybe your lesson plans or your game designs for your class, but that's really cool. So you are both part of Dr. Wits. Can you give us a brief, maybe overview of what, what you're all about, what your a board game company is about? Well, it's, it's, we're designers, so I don't know, I wouldn't think of us as a company. More co-authors. Right, co-authors. And uh, because there's two of us, and that's so rare in this space, we came up with a moniker, a brand for ourselves uh, in order to help ease any confusion <laughs> if someone starts talking to one or the other of us. I mean, the, the way we got started is, I mean, we've been playing board games for a long time. I mean, in high school, we'd get together and play diplomacy. So we, we went to the same high school. Austin's been playing serious board games longer than I have. I, I'm not going to deny that. But we were at my, my bachelor's party and we decided that what we really needed was a a board game about magical racing rocks where you could 
buy and sell your bets throughout the race. And and that first game led to us collaborating. And, and Austin had designed some stuff beforehand. He had a wonderful card game called Model You on the Card Game. It was good enough that, that, that I was able to, in, in college, sell it to some people who I knew who did Model You. Right. So you know, <laughs> it was sold, not enough to be on BGG Con, uh, B, B, Board Game Geek, but uh, good enough that people paid money to have a copy. I mean, I still I still have a copy on my shelf. <laughs> it's still it's still sitting there. So how did so it's a model UN card game? How did you come up with that idea? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, well, I had been participating in model UN since uh, since uh, high school, and it wasn't until what like midway through college when I was still participating in model UN, where I'm like, yeah, you know, could come up with a shortish card game that's based around parliamentary procedures and really as a teaching aid for other people who don't know how hard it is to get anything passed in Model UN or the United Nations in general. And this was done by a two-phase thing where in the whole first half of the game, people are are working with and against each other to set up their legis to set up their bills, their amendments, and then in the second phase, the whole group votes if these things pass or not. But of course, if they pass or not depends on what your final score is. So everybody just votes everybody else's legislation down, and the game ends without anyone getting any points. <laughs> is there is there any way to win that game? <laughs> sure, of course, there's a way. Oh, yeah, there is a way if you can build a broad enough coalition <laughs> on a bill that everyone says, okay, yeah. We'll get that passed, then that will work. But typically, players are too selfish, try to score as much as they can on any singular bill, and everybody else says, no, we're not going to give that to you. <laughs> and if you're you're at a Model UN conference where there's awards and prizes mm. for quote-unquote being uh-huh. the best, you see some of that because players were doing things more for the prestige of the prize, which gets in the way of things getting done, which... I will tell you now, after interning with the U.S. State Department, you're going to discover, you know, Model UN conferences are not very different from actual government be, uh, behavior. So working in politics, when, when I did that and, and such, the, the problems you see at Model UN, the, the experience you have in Model UN is, is pretty much what you're going to see when you're out there doing the real thing. It's when it first happens and you realize that you go, oh, oh. So that's really how it works, huh? <laughs> okay. Those, those petty high school fields are still the same. Oh, people drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Yep, still the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> people here seriously about the conference and some people mm-hmm. aren't. Yep, still the same. I think it's super awesome too, you guys. You take, or I guess that's kind of where Dr. Witt's, the, the whole idea of the using real world mechanics came from. Is that, that kind of was the birth of it maybe? Uh, it's, I mean, it was definitely the birth of us working yeah. together because I think Model One's where we yes, first met. Yes, it is. It, that that's where we first met and started. Yes, working together. But as far as the game design philosophy, I think it's just that both of us like to play games where we have far more uh, player agency and player interaction with other players than dealing with more solo and solitaire based mechanical heavy experiences in our games it's just like this is where the fun is you know and we just happen to be able to spot when that occurs outside the traditional board gaming space because we go 
that's fun over there, like Model UN, which eventually became us going, oh, that's the actual government. Involvement in government is fun because of these games. Involvement in the stock market is fun because of these games. And involvement in contract negotiations, for God's sakes, is fun because of these games. And then we look at board games, we say to ourselves, where is this in the board games we want to play? And so it's always looking around saying, oh, oh, there's a game in that. I can see the game in that. Now I have to figure out how to translate that into something that makes sense. <laughs> but right, it's it's finding, you know, yes, there's the stock market and there's government and those topics are really big and broad. But what you're always looking for is how to prune that back and say, okay, this interaction between people and how you know how things come about, how decisions are being made, that can be extrapolated, pulled out, and put into its own uh, into a, into a new context, into the context of a board game or, or particular things that are very strategic. Well, we have a game called New Jersey Syndicate, and thematically, the game is about trying to become the new Don of the New Jersey Syndicate, but the mechanics themselves are actually based on uh, mortgage-backed securities and the idea that in mortgage-backed securities, the first per the way the way they're able to sell junk mortgages as an A value security is they're able to say that we'll make a line of people and we pay the people at the top of the line before we pay the bottom. And so we create a game where in essence the top of the line was a safer thing to have and the bottom of the line was more dangerous to create some of the, uh, the experience you have and, and deal with the tactical decisions that go along with that sort of setup. I mean, if you look at some discussion, because mortgage-backed securities are set up that way, it changes the incentives for the people who hold the loans. The loan holders don't have the same incentives to give borrowers a haircut because if you're at the bottom of the line of a mortgage-backed security and someone gets a haircut, that means you just lost everything. Versus if you're talking more of a traditional loan where a single bank holds it, a haircut on a loan for them means that they still are getting a percentage of the money and they're not losing everything. And that just changes the way you approach dealing with these situations. But the games themselves don't always make it clear that that inspiration comes from those mechanics. What we're doing is we're taking those situations that exist and putting them in the game so people experience those situations and the fun and tension that comes with them. Right. So I wonder, like, my teaching brain's kind of going off. And I wonder if cause something like that for me, I economics are maybe over my head. I, I'm, I know I have a good grasp on, like, personal finance, but anything beyond that's kind of kind of difficult for me to process or understand. So I wonder, do you think using something like that, a pretty difficult concept or theory and taking it and putting it into a game is something that gives students a more, an easier way to manage the material or manage the content? So when I teach at Bethany College, I do incorporate a lot of games, especially in the principal's level. And I purposely will do narrow games in class so they can really experience experience the concept. When we talk about, say, a price floor or a price ceiling, we can do a game where they can see the market operate without a price floor and a price ceiling. And then we can do the same game again, but then impose a price floor and price ceiling. They can start seeing the negative consequences of, say, rent control 
or if you were to, to impose a price ceiling on a, on a scarce resource or an emergency, they, they can start seeing or being that person who no longer can have access to that good anymore because when you impose that control, you disincentivize other people to provide you that product, which creates shortages. So the using games in econ is really powerful, whether we're talking about straight traditional neoclassical market problems, or we're talking about asymmetric information problems and contracting, or we're talking about government problems. Werewolf is a great game to use in an econ class to really push the idea of, of the idea of what can lead to government failure from the perspective of economics and to talk about what created the government failure and how reasonable should we expect government failure to not occur based on knowing that these conditions lead to government failure. And I was going to say that this is one of the reasons why I really like trying to build and making real world mechanic games is for the very thing that you just said. You said, these concepts seem over my head. But the truth is that it's it's not. It's actually not. But I don't have an easy way of telling you that. I would rather put it in a board game and have you play that, have you experience that, and understand, oh, wait, this is not over my head. I, I get this. You know, by, by the end of playing these things, you're, you, you understand the concept without it having been maybe over-talked to you, but you now understand it. Just take New Jersey Syndicate. Nowhere do we ever tell anyone that they're doing something based off mortgage-backed securities. Nowhere. All they have to know is that there's a line of goons, and the further you are away from the center, the more likely the FBI is going to arrest you and take you in. And that's all they need to know to then start dealing with the decision challenges of a mortgage-backed security. Or you know, you can look at a, another game we've been working on called Hoboken, they don't need to know that they're going through a critical lesson on, on why do we have stock and focus on a very particular part of stock. They just need to realize, well, if I'm going to build my hotel, I need to work with someone else and we just happen to divide ownership with stock, not necessarily realizing that this is one of the key reasons we have stocks. The purpose of stock is to enable coordination for people to cooperate to do larger things because by themselves, they don't have enough resources to do it. But when you divide up an enterprise in shares of stock, then you allow people to pool their resources together to create something larger. So just for context there, the crux of Hoboken is that you're trying to build hotels, but the problem is you don't individually have enough money in order to get these hotels built. So you have to form partnerships, i.e. divvy up stock in the hotels that you're creating. And it's always very, uh, very gratifying to see new players sit down at this game and pick it up right away because they're doing something that feels, that already feels natural to them because they're making deals with each other. They're negotiating over price. I'm going to get this much, you're going to get that much. We come to a deal. And so that game puts into practice the theory uh, that Aaron was just talking about. I mean, that's super awesome. I think your games, at least a couple that you're describing, sound very intuitive. It's something that, like you said, I maybe don't understand the theory, but I sit down and I can play the game and understand how to play. But I wonder, so you talked about, too, you really find the fun in real-world situations and apply them into your games. 
what are some of, I guess, design sacrifices you make to either kind of lose the theory or do you make some of those sacrifices to lose the theory to really dig into that fun part of the game? I don't think we do, but it does have a challenge that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to make that experience easy to access in the game. In the real world, they have a lot of tools out there that you get to use, whether it's in computer systems or traditions that people don't necessarily have going into a game. So you spend a lot of extra time thinking about how to take something and and turn it into a straightforward, unconfusing experience. That's that's where a lot of work is at, is is taking the time to make this easy to operate. You You can't have a lot of time being spent just doing little steps instead of playing the game. And that's that's really where a lot of work is at. It's, it's turning these m- mechanics, these events, into something that is, I, there's a specific word for this. What do we call when we uh, have board games, there's lots of little steps in them. Uh, you mean fiddly? It's maintenance, upkeep? Upkeep, yeah. You have to spend a lot of time getting rid of upkeep. And, and that's a lot of work. I mean, we have a game called Bookies and Betters. And Bookies and Betters is based on the efficient market hypothesis for uh, stock markets. But the game itself, when you play it, you're just making bets with other people. But it's taken us a long time to be able to reduce that betting system in a very simple form so that execution and getting your money back on bets is straightforward, easy, not confusing. And that, that, that takes a lot of work and a lot of patience. It took years to uh, be able to make that game easy enough for players to be able to jump right into it without that upkeep, without that bookkeeping that may necessarily come with it. So as you go through like an entire game design process from idea to the final game that's playable or playable to an extent that you feel comfortable maybe publishing it, what is kind of some philosophies you follow or maybe even some challenges that you want to be sure to overcome as you go on that game design journey. So first, let me plug right now, doctordr.wictz.com, where we have written a series of what we call lecture series. And one of the big lecture series we've, we've written on is the idea of the controlling idea, which is how we start our game designs. We are always asking ourselves, what's the experience we want to have players experience right like what is the thing that one thing that we want them to be doing in this game and what what's always fun about thinking about game design in ter- in those terms is that there's a whole lot of set dressing there's a whole lot of like uh, thematical things that can rotate and shift and change but as long as you can hold on to that controlling idea, then you know that you're still going to be able to deliver that game experience to the players. Bookies and betters, we want them to see that the stock market is all about trading information and that it's really a game about who has the best information. And by making these bets and being able to change your bets throughout the race and having your inside information on the race when people are making their bets, which is really simulating a naked short sale in the stock market. What they're really doing is they're communicating, I have information that this horse is going to do well, and you have information that this horse is going to do poorly. And when everyone's doing this and trying to set what amount they're going to bet on in the race, we're getting the information 
on future expectations of what's going to happen. And the player that wins that game is the player who's best able to read that information. So we have that idea. And if the game is able to live up to that controlling idea, then we've been successful. But we always start with the idea we want, whether it's about a particular bit of information, a particular moment of time. You know, we have a prototype right now where we're trying to have people really feel the tension that took place during a, a banking crisis where uh, JP Morgan locked everyone in a room with no bathroom and said, here's our problem. You're going to fix it by tomorrow. With the sort of stakes that if they don't, there was a real threat the entire U.S stock market was going to collapse and banking market was going to collapse. But once we pick that idea, then then that's we focus on really making sure that experience is preserved, no matter what the theme is, because the theme does not have to match the idea. It's about the experience and the experience being accessible to people so that they can have that experience. I, I mean, I absolutely love that. I know anyone that listens to the show always hears me compare or make the parallels between a game design, designing for experience and teachers lesson designing for learning outcomes and I think one thing that's really unique about your games is it's very similar to game-based learning in a way I guess where if we're designing a game as a teacher as a part of our lesson plan to teach a concept we're thinking about those learner outcomes and how can we make sure our students start from point a to point b and understand what we're trying to teach where you have it a little bit different maybe but they're probably maybe still learning too, but you're trying to get them to experience those real world mechanics. And that's really cool. And part of that is, I mean, at least for me personally, with the frustration at some of the econ games that exist out there, when we were, there's a lot of games out there that, that, well, first, okay, econ games have a bad reputation with people. And and I understand because a lot of the games that call themselves econ games are economic themes and not economic mechanics. And a lot of those games can be really bad, or they can just be mis. They might not be bad. Like there's good games out there, but they're misleading how econ actually works. But either, either case, it was frustrating for me as you know when we first started. I was I was a graduate student econ- in economics. These games that were supposedly about economics, but they weren't actually utilizing economics in the game. They were just pasting on some econ theme and in many ways, giving econ a bad name. And that that partially was one of the motivators that, that led to me getting involved with Austin and Design Games was that they, they're doing things, they're claiming it's a stock market, but they're not actually running a stock market. They're not actually using any of the stuff that takes place in the stock market. They're just using the idea of a stock market as a way to try to simplify the mechanic they're actually using. But the mechanic they're actually using is not a market mechanic, which is also why another lecture series that Austin and I wrote, and doctordr.wictz.com, we have a whole series on what is a, a market mechanic from an economic perspective, economic mechanics versus economic themes to try to create that clarity so that people can benefit because there's a lot of things that use economic mechanics that don't tell you they're doing that and they use them very well, but they're not necessarily known as econ games because that's not their theme. Can you tell which one of us is a professor? (laughs) 
No, because then when he when he come when he comes to me and he's like, "Hey, we're gonna let's do a board game that like simulates the stock market." I'm like, I'm enough of a nerd to be like, "Yes, let's do that. That's gonna be great." <laughs> and we're gonna have people have fun about and have fun over this. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's super super interesting, especially what you were mentioning. I am someone who maybe looks at economic games as not as <laughs> not as engaging or as fun because like you said it's it's more the theme the economic theme maybe not so much theory or the ideas behind the game i'm sure i've probably played some games that have economic theory built into them already wits and wagers is a great example of a game that uses economic theory Especially if you look at the first re- uh, redemption of it, because when Wits and Wagers first came out, when you made your bets, the bets on the ends had a higher payout than bets in the middle. And there's a theory in econ called rational expectation. And it's used in political science as well. And it's the general idea that if you survey people and you get the, the medium answer, typically the medium answer is really accurate. A great example is Planet Money asked people online to uh, see a picture of a cow and to estimate the weight of the cow. And their estimate was really close. It was better than, than Google's estimate when they asked Google to do it. And, and the idea comes from, you know, everyone has a little bit of information on the cow. And as, as a whole in society, if, if we one side will cancel the other side out and the people who know it are going to be more towards the true number and, and once you take that medium, you, you're pretty close. And in a lot of applications, that's true. And so in Winston Wagers, they have their lowest payout and bets right in the middle, as you would expect with rational expectations. Now, if you played Whitson Waiters, you, you know that the middle is typically not always the right answer. And that's because for rational expectations to fully work, you have to have a large enough crowd of people playing it. But it's a, it's a game that is, at heart, built on an idea, whether they realize it or not, that's strongly grounded in economic theory, political science, they use it a lot in statistics for justification of a number of why certain things should work. But no one typically calls it an economic game. They call it a fun trivia game that you – it's a great trivia game because it's no longer about being the person who really knows what's right. You know, you can win wits and wagers by just knowing the people who you think knows the most information and you can put all your bets on them. And and again, that's that's the information side that takes a place in a lot of models involving the economy. Right. I think also it, it as a player's experience, it gives that player a bit more agency to kind of choose to go a different route with trying to win the game too. I will say that one of the one of the things that is a bit of a challenge that we've that we've been constantly working on is that these games tend to have larger player counts, which it, it in itself is not a problem because when you have a full suite of players playing the game, it is a lot of fun because you have a lot of actors, a lot of players, a lot of people to bounce your ideas, your prospects, your bets off of. But as far as a more traditional game space, we've been working on trying to figure out ways to do this and and bring the player count down to uh, smaller group sizes. An important goal, if, if your goal is to get the game published to the general market, which is not necessarily a problem if you're running a class, now, when you're writing a class, you have a luxury of having a rough idea what your class sizes are going to be. So having a larger person game for a class exercise might actually be a, a requirement depending on the sort of group of students you're working with in the setting. Right. I think there's a big distinction, I guess, between 
I guess, entertainment games and classroom games. And I know as myself as a teacher trying to bring some of those games in the classroom, that's a one thing that I usually have to redesign the game for is how do I how do I bring this in the class with a class of 30 people? Like trap words, I've had to I've used that in class where I just did three groups. I had one group that was uh, I think a judge, and they kind of made sure that the time was right, the that they didn't say the trap words. But yeah, I think it's a struggle as a teacher taking those games that are lower player counts and bringing them into the class. What I guess what kind of tips would you would you give to any educators that are looking to bring either an economic game or any other game into their classroom? Right, right. What lesson are they trying to teach? <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> I mean, so the single challenge of, of board games is, and this is true not just for people who want to teach with games, but this is also true for people who are designing games. Board games, because of the way they operate, you probably only have the ability to focus on a very narrow lesson. Uh, some people, they try to cover too many things with a game, and, and games are not set up well to do that. At least, at least from, I think, from a teaching perspective. When I'm using Catan to teach about price ceilings. I'm not worried about other aspects because that's asking too much of, of my lesson goals. There are other things you can use Catan to teach about because Catan is useful for talking about maybe colonialism. It's useful for talking about trade. But if I'm trying to think about asking too much out of a game and and how I'm going to model a game and, and do things a game, it's it's really easy to lose focus and get lost in the woods. And that's both from a design perspective and from a lesson perspective from, from games that could use for multiple lessons as well. So it's, it's really important to keep your goals narrow and to find something that can serve that narrow purpose. Now, sometimes with games, you, you make a little modifications to the rules to, again, focus attention on those narrow purposes. We have already listed two different games based on theory on stock. And they're very focused on one specific aspect of stock. And there's a lot more aspects to stock, but to try to tackle all those aspects in a single game would be too overwhelming, not just to teach, but for the players to play, for for people to track the information. We have to keep it narrow, in part because the medium is easier to pick up in a narrow sense, the lesson's easier to, to observe in a narrow sense, and it allows you, in some ways, to better lesson plan for the scenarios that can come out. Because, I mean, when you teach... As you know, you're at the mercy of what the students see. And so you need to be prepared to have the flexibility to take what they see and, and push that on the broader lessons. Now, it's great. Werewolf can work out that we get the efficient solution for government. That's great. We're going to have to talk about why it happened. Is that a common occurrence or not? You know, I don't expect that to happen most games, but it could happen. But I am prepared for that. And because I'm using it for that narrow sense, it's really easy to focus discussion and be prepared for the variety of outcomes that come with, with a game. Because gaming as a teaching tool is definitely a tool where you are, in some ways, losing control of a classroom for the purpose of students to experience themselves. Yeah, right. I, I love, I kind of really like that though, giving more agency and more control and more opportunities for students to take over how they experience the learning. But you're right with having to kind of think on the fly, I suppose, maybe something or at least plan for different occurrences in the game. And and to that point, I, I spent a, this is, this is a failed board game story, but I spent a couple of years working on a game that I called Bitter Creek. And this game was essentially Gold Town Simulator, the board game, 
which in my mind was is a five player game, but in reality it could fit. You you would really want to play it with 30 people for it to really work. But the problem was after I kind of got the whole thing put together, the game was so complicated and so uh, resource intensive in the sense of so much bookkeeping had to be done by every single person that played it and especially the teacher (laughs) or the person running the thing that came to the realization that it would never be able to fly anywhere, even as a five-player game. So that got shelved. Especially in the board gaming universe, yes, because you don't have you do, you do not have automatic systems that are going to automatically track things for you. But it, but talking about that player agency, right. it would have been a game where this where the participants would have chosen. Well, I'm going to run a business, and this is the this is the sector that I'm going to get involved in involved in, or I'm going to run for politics, and I'm going to like run this, and you know, I'm going to like be in charge of this small town. And there's like a back and forth between that between those two halves and and there's a, it's also a gold town so people are trying to mine gold and there's you know depleting resources you know it becomes harder and harder to dig up the gold as the game goes on but the more gold you bring in more people come in so there's more people to like hire and potentially make money off of and it it, kind of, it, it worked but you could never actually play it yeah I think I mean I'm thinking as a teacher that that might be a little it's a little much a little time consuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would it would. <laughs> so, would you say there is a opportunity for students to or have you experienced this where a student you're teaching a concept and you ask students to design a game based around that concept to help really understand the meat of an economic theory? Absolutely. I had this this great experience with a uh, a math student who was completing her senior project, and she was going to do a senior project looking at the statistics used in biology. And in particular, she was very interested in this idea that that cells move in a pattern that's called a random walk. You ever heard of random walk before? Random walk? Random walk. It's a mathematical thing. No, no. So let's just imagine that we have someone who's drank way too much, and they're, they're starting in a chair, and we leave them alone for three hours, what is the best spot we could pick in the world that's most likely to be the closest to where they're going to be? Okay. So like in the room where we should leave them or where we want them to be? Just just imagine that they're somewhere, middle of a field. They're in a chair. We leave them for three hours so we come back. What point can we pick that's the most likely to be the closest that we can get to them. I'm not sure. <laughs> where they started. Now, think about, let's say they could only walk a mile in three hours. If they were to pause, backtrack, not go in a straight line, it brings them closer and closer to where they started. This problem is a common problem in economics. So she came to me actually originally because she was doing board game stuff. She wanted to model random walk and board games. So she didn't realize that she was modeling an economics problem when she first came to me. But she said, I, I want to do this board game modeling the random walk of cells. Because when, whenever you do a, a data collection where you're looking at the same thing over time, it's like that random walk problem. You're looking at something that starts somewhere. And no matter where it moves, the best predictor of where it's 
going to be at is where it started because and if it backtracks at all or zigzags at all or pauses at all, it brings it closer to its starting point. And so she does this random walk as a game. And when she brings it to me and we start talking about it, it really comes out to me and say, well, you realize that random walk creates data problems. When you do statistical work, there are certain things that have to be true to be confident that you're, when you see something, predict something. Like say, if it gets cold outside, people drink more soup. You, you would measure the temperature, you measure how much soup people are consuming. For that prediction to work, when you test it for whether or not you're, you're confident that it's actually true, certain conditions have to hold. And if they don't, you can't trust your results. Random walk is one of those things that does exactly that. It undermines your ability to trust time series data, which is what we call data where, where you repeat something over and over again. And so she does this game. We, just, we talk about this random walk problem. And so it, it allows me to introduce her to this literature on random walk because economists care about random walk a lot because uh, a great example of, of a random walk problem is the stock market. What's the best predictor of a stock price of Google tomorrow? Well, it's the stock price of Google today because if people thought Google's stock price was going to go down tomorrow, the price would go down today because no one would be willing to pay more money for something that's going to be worth less tomorrow. And so this led to her reading a lot of econ literature on all the work economists do to make themselves confident they don't have a random walk problem. But economists put the burden on giving us evidence that there is no random walk problem to make sure that uh, we can trust our, our, our predictions. And she, she has this great project where she then shows, she does some mathematical modeling of um, biology, and she does them using random walk, but when she shows it to people and the, and the results, she says, oh, you might think it's these functions. And if it's these functions, that's not a problem, but this is from random walk. And because we have random walk, we can't actually trust our results. And that that actually, her senior project did really well for her. It got her um, an interview with an agency that, that works with the U.S. government to predict the spread of uh, diseases so that when you're shipping out medicine to hospitals, you're properly giving out the right medicines. You're not having stuff in the wrong spots. And in her interview, she was one of the three finalists for this job out of a multi-thousand applicant pool. They spent their entire time just talking about this project she did at Bethany College where she learned all this for just starting from this idea that I want to model random walk as a board game. And that led to discussions about well, what, what are the problems in random walk? What are the things I can look at where people have dealt with these problems? And she really dug deeper into the economic literature. And in the end, which makes every economist happy, because you think, once you're going to learn about economists, they think everything's economics, no matter what it is. <laughs> no, it, it gave the economists no reason to say, so what you really need to do in biology is use more economic theory on uh, time series data to make sure you actually are observing something that's really happening and not just a random walk problem where there's actually nothing happening here. You're just inferring something that isn't actually occurring. Right. Then, I mean, that's super awesome. I'd like the that your student actually came up with the game to be able to explain this theory. What, what really helps is that we have a a strong board gaming culture amongst especially the um, the students in the physical and computational science department at Bethany College. And they know that I'm part of Dr. Witz and I design games. And so 
once they know you're interested in games, they will come to, if they're doing a game project, they'll come to you. I mean, she's not the only student I've worked with involving board games, but they know you're this board game resource. And by going through the process of designing a board game, the questions you would want to answer, it really encourages this sort of digging into what's taking place that gives them this opportunity to really expand their knowledge. But that it's that culture of people who are already interested in board games, they get this idea of applying it to something and, and then you just having to be the person there that's lucky enough to help guide them through that process and, and that discovery. So Ian, you likely had a chance to play the game too? I did, yes. It involved lots of running around and trying to eat each other because that's what, you know, micro organisms do they're they're hungry and one gobbles the other and you're trying not to be gobbled and you're constrained by in her case we had these die rolls to simulate the random walk situation but that's that was fun that was on point and uh i actually think we still have that game up in the uh, math science community learning resource center i'll have to go look but it it's also very rewarding to see the game again because that's something where the student has made something that's clearly their own. They take ownership of it. They take pride in it. They remember it. It's, it's one of those projects where they're not going to forget they did it years afterwards, which is not, not always the case with stuff you do in education. Now, there's a lot of things you do where, where it easily can get overshadowed by something else. But because this is something major they've created, it becomes one of those uh, inflection points in their studies that that will define them afterwards. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's not It's not one of those one of 20 lectures that you went to. It's this thing that you spent a lot of time on and you experienced the process of solving a problem too. Creating. I mean, I like to think more of, or more of those, what you want to think of as art or as um, the joy of, of making something. You really have that joy that you've created this game. This is your game that you've created and this game has helped you understand the world better, which you may or may not expect. You know, when students tackle these sort of projects, their expectations vary. But once you've done it, it becomes very apparent that if I'm building a game about, um, I never student to a game about uh, horse breeding. They were they were an equine major. She had to really research all the tiny little details of how do you breed horses, the genetics involved with that, for her to be able then to simplify that into a game. You know, because games have to be simplified at some extent to really work, the ability to simplify, it's very conditional and having a good understanding about what you are trying to experience with your, your controlling idea. And that give strong sense to, to not just put this idea together, but to also to really research the idea to have the ability to pull off that simplification to make it work. Right. Yeah, I think you definitely make a strong point about creating something that is something very tangible and something that you can always have, I guess, in the future too. And you can look back on how you went through that process of making this to understand a topic. I think that's really, really awesome. 
And then there's games like Model UN, the card game, which you kind of want to forget after a while. It sounds like Aaron will never, will never, never, let you never forget. You know, we're, we're, we're often really trying to create the experience of Model UN in the form of a card. But the great thing about Model UN, the card game, even though it might have not been the best game. Sorry, Austin. I think it's the best at showing what it is, doing what it's supposed to do. I, I won't touch that. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> but the process Austin went through to make a game where he was really trying to have people experience Mario UN, he knows a lot of the intricate details about Mario UN. He has to, otherwise he's not able to attempt to simplify the game. I mean, the games don't have to work or be successful to be successful in terms of being a learning tool. The learning tool can come from the process. Sometimes, though, the successfulness of the game improves it as a learning tool, but sometimes it, it's not the important part. The important part is the process you went through to create that game about your controlling idea, about your subject, that really can give students deeper insight. In, in that game about random walk, in the end, she makes this, this wonderful random walk game, but then sort of just forgets about it because it became more of a launching point for the deeper exploration that she, she wants to learn in how should I really think about statistics when I'm doing these biological experiments? Should I really believe the results I'm seeing or are they actually misleading me about what is the real truth that takes place? I think uh, I, it makes me want to... <laughs> Ask my students to design games now too. Do it. I think it's a do it. Uh, it's just, it speaks volumes, right? It's, Make sure it, they play a few games first. Uh, just, just, right. just, just. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's that's the one caveat I want to put out there. If if they don't have any experience designing games before, one of the things you know, I did a board game design class as a freshman seminar at Bethany College this last fall. One of the things that's that's important to do is is helping them realize how much room they have to work with. If, if they haven't played a lot of games, they might have a very constrained view of what a board game must be. And that can limit the opportunities they have to really do things with their game and to use their game as, as a learning tool. So if, if, they, if they have a very right. narrow idea of what a board game must be, then, then there's a lot of creative opportunity that could really help them develop their, their understand their their topic that they're going to miss if they don't have that some some experience expanding the idea of what a board game can be, which is why it's really useful too. Right. If, if you're using yeah. uh, board games as part of your lesson plans for other topics, that's one way you can give them that exposure sneakily. So it's important to be sneaky as an instructor. I think it, it also goes back though to the idea that it's not. I mean. You make a good point about the creative process and if you're not aware of what board games can do maybe you lose out on some of the things you could do creatively in the game design to understand the content a little bit deeper but i think again it goes back to the previous point you made where it's just it's more about the process than the final product of a game when learning the content absolutely all right so before before we head into our final segment Austin and Aaron, do you have any maybe final advice for either an educator that's trying to use games or maybe even like a game designer trying to design games for the classroom or for use of maybe practical 
uh, real world mechanics like you do in your games? Any advice that you might offer? So if there's one running theme that we've just been going through that I would reiterate, simplify, simplify your yeah. game, simplify. Your primary job when you're taking a real world thing is to make it so that people can execute that in a board game without having to spend all their time doing book work. And, and that's, that takes a lot of work and practice. And it's actually really helpful to look far in the past before computers because a lot of these things that we're doing, they did historically and they had to do it by hand. They didn't have the option of uh, utilizing some of the tools we have. And they came up with lots of ingenious shortcuts and ideas that you can take advantage of to simplify your game. And you will also usually find the benefit that when you start using their techniques too, you also have a better idea of why they're doing things. Because if you're using those tools by hand, you don't just willy-nilly make a decision. You very purposely chose to do something for a reason. And you start to understand that reason, which is a, an even deeper insight of why things are done the way they're done. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'm, I know our listeners will definitely find the feedback and advice you have given in this episode very valuable. And I want to move into our final segment. So I'm going to give you a statement and you'll give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. I guess maybe really quick one more time. Austin, can you say I'm Austin and Aaron, you say I'm Aaron so we can recognize your voice. This is Austin. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Perfect. And this is Aaron. Thumbs up or thumbs down. All right. So the first one, watching live board game playthroughs. Uh, uh, I'm going to I'm going to say thumbs down. I usually go to the review <laughs> instead of the playthrough. Okay. I'm going to give a thumbs up if I'm watching it there in person, mm. but not necessarily on video. Because in person, watching, I can get a lot of information about a game. Usually if I'm watching a game, I'm probably there to give it advice. <laughs> and so I can learn a lot watching the game. And, and so that, that can be still really useful for me to learn what they're doing and to give useful feedback to a designer usually when i stop to watch other people play a game after a while they look up at me like what what are you doing <laughs> like all right all right i'll leave i'll leave <laughs> all right how about video games i'm gonna give it a thumbs down oh. and and the reason i give video games a thumbs down is that uh they can automate a lot of things to the point where there's some really neat things that you can play that you don't know exist because it automatically did it for you. Uh, I'm going to give it a thumbs up because if I could turn Bitter Creek into a computer game, that's the only way it would work. <laughs> if I can get a computer to automate all that and everybody's got an, I got, it has an iPad that they're just pushing buttons, except I can't sell a box full of iPads. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little bit too expensive. <laughs> well, that goes into the next one. Digital-based board games. 
Yeah, thumbs down. I know that it's been an experiment that they've tried the last couple of years. No one's been able to nail it yet. I have a feeling that no one's going to nail it. And because the reason why people come to board games is because they want human interaction with other people. And it's harder to do that when you also have a screen nearby to get uh, sucked into. I will give it a thumbs up, but as a conditional thumbs up. <laughs> and, you know, Tabletop Simulator is a great resource for doing some more prototyping work. You know, especially if you are far away from other groups, it can be a place where you can put together a prototype, bring in play testers, play it out. And in that sense, it's a great resource. But I don't see it as something that's replacing most board gaming. I just see it as a tool to create better board games. Though sometimes it is the only way to play Twilight Imperium. <laughs> I, I will I will grant you that. I will grant you that. <laughs> how 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 do we how do we count diplomacy by email? Uh I would say digital based, right? Uh yeah, right? It's email. Because you could play it through letters, mm -hmm. and then it wouldn't be digital-based. Mm -hmm. So I, I would classify that as digital-based, but I think there's some leeway for opinion there. All right, how about using your phone during games, during playing board games? Thumbs down unless, unless you are taking pictures to share with others about the excitement you're having. Then that's, that's two thumbs up. But if you're other outside of that... You know, if, if I'm in the room playing games with you, I want to be playing a game with you and not with some phone or some drone. It's It takes away from the fun. You know, the point of the game for me is, is pretty much the experience. And I can only have that experience if you're, if I feel like we're all participating in it. You know, I want, I want you to be, I want you to be Bruce Vogel, who's going to just make something exciting no matter how boring of a thing it's going to be. Uh, but I only get that part of, of you in the game if you are there and not somewhere else. Uh, I'm also going to say thumbs down, but with a slightly different caveat. Um, and, you know, Aaron says you can pick it up to take pictures, and I'm even really bad about that. But the only reason I bring up my phone during a game is if I have to run off and, and ask a rules question that's not readily apparent in front of us. Yeah, I think that's those are my two times I use the phone. Unless I have like some call I'm expecting, but I'll usually announce that to the table. Say, hey, sorry. That's just courtesy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just being right, courteous. Right. All right, so we got two more. Okay, Monopoly. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah. It's a great yeah, game. Yeah, it is. If you follow the rules. Follow the rules. Read the rules. Follow the rules. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't put money in free parking. Right. Auction every time. <laughs> that's right. And remember, the game's all about trading. If you aren't trading, you aren't really playing the game. That's right. <laughs> and don't forget to don't forget to mortgage your homes if you need the money. Mortgage them. Yeah, it's twenty percent to buy them back, but it can be worth it to get those houses up. Honestly, <laughs> the money you get on a property with no houses is, is worthless. Mm -hmm. Get those houses. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't have that on the list before, and I had thought about that. <laughs> I was trying to think of another economic themed game, but that's the first one that came to my mind. All right, last one, board game podcast. Thumbs up. Wonderful. Thumbs, Thumbs up. up. And there's, there's a lot of great podcasts out there with specialties. I mean, there's obviously this one. Oh, yeah. 
you want to give a couple shout outs yeah please do but but the thing i like about board game podcasts especially ones that have a queer identity is that you can really learn about within that queer identity whether we're talking about using games in education or I love the party game cast. I, I love Flip the Table. But all those series that we're mentioning, they have created a very clear identity about their niche. And and that helps me really to to enjoy their, their content versus I don't know if I could could handle a, a more general podcast personally. And of course I will I will give a shout out to Ludology, So Very Wrong About Games, and Space Cats Peace Turtles. All right, so that concludes our rapid-fire thumbs-up, thumbs-down round. So, Austin and Aaron, again, thank you guys for coming on the show. I think I learned a lot, and I know others listening did as well. If someone wanted to reach out to you, or if you have any games coming up or any projects you're working on, can you share those with anyone listening? So, first, best way to reach Dr. Witz, we're on Twitter, at D-R-W-I-C-T-Z as well as Instagram at drwictz. We have a website, drdr.wictz.com. We also have a Discord channel as well. In terms of upcoming projects, we have a... What are we allowed to say? We have to be careful here. I believe it's like we can talk about Cookie Bandit, but we can't say... We can talk about Cookie Bandit. You're right. You're right. But we can't say when or if it's coming out. <laughs> but we can talk about it. <laughs> we have a, a, a fun game called Cookie Bandit signed by Yagawana Games. Don't ask us when it's coming out. We have, you know, things have to get done on other projects first, but but it is in the pipeline and it's a, a social deduction game meant for a family setting and including younger players. Someone stole a cookie from the cookie jar. And it was mama's cookie. And so someone's going to get grounded. And of course, not just someone, the person you, one of us, somebody that you, the person who gets the most accusations as being the one who stole the cookie is the one who gets grounded. Okay. <laughs> That's like mama hiding the, the chocolate somewhere in you. That's really cool. I love social deduction games and always looking for, we're starting family board game events here in LA and I'm looking for more family games to add to our arsenal. So I'll keep an eye out for that one. But that's, that's the, the project that's uh, coming out in the future. Uh, again, thank you guys for coming on, and hopefully I can catch you at another convention soon. Well, thank you for having us. Absolutely. As always, thank you for listening, and be sure to check out our Facebook page. We also now have a meetup for anyone interested in our programs or events. You can find any of these programs or events on Facebook or on Meetup or on our website, boardgamewitheducation.com backslash events. So be sure to connect with us there if you're in the Los Angeles area. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to leave a review. It really helps others discover our show in different podcasting platforms. And again, before we go, be sure to check out Facing Off on Kickstarter. Facing Off is our sponsor for this episode. They have a game... The game on Kickstarter right now is a super social, all-play, role-changing party game where you compete to describe, sketch, and bet your way to victory in two-minute, time-pressured rounds. So it is a lot of fun. You can check that out on Kickstarter right now, facing off. And again, until next time.
Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time. 